You're very welcome along to the Sessie Staff Room. Um, the Sessie Staff Room is a podcast for teachers, about teachers, about educators in general. Uh, today's guest is Pam O'Brien. Pam O'Brien is a good friend of mine, so I'm delighted to have her on. I'll tell you, Pam is, is busy. She's a lecturer. Um, she is an organizer of a conference, ICT-EDU. She's a EU Code Week ambassador. She's a mentor for a Coder Dojo. And she's a uh, youth media team mentor as well. Now, I want you to remember that youth media team. That's an important one. You're going to, you're going to want to listen to that. We're going to talk about where it all started for her. EU Code Week, uh, Youth Media Team. Stay tuned. You're going to like it. Take me back to sixth year in school. And I remember we had some lecturers coming in from different colleges. And a guy called Mike Wallace came in from, as it was then, NIHE Limerick. He was in the maths department. I loved maths. So he sold me applied maths in NIHE Limerick. And that's where I ended up. Um, I came out of there when it was University of Limerick rather than NIHE Limerick. So that is aging me. But anyway, there we go uh, with an applied maths degree. And I suppose my plan had been that I would get a job in the maths area. But back in, in those days, there weren't that many jobs in the maths area in Ireland. Now, that has hugely changed since. But back then, there really weren't that many jobs. So I took a job as an analyst programmer, delighted to get it, um, which, again, was a little bit different to where I thought I might end up. Because when I went into college and, you know, I talked to people in SESI and in lots of different areas about, you know, their love affair with coding and computer science and all that I didn't have that maths was my first love probably still is but it's jostling with with the computer science at this point in time um, so I always thought that I'd end up in a maths job and I did for a little while but I, I kind of took a circuitous route so I ended up working as, a, as an analyst programmer and then after seven years I became company statistician for what was then Eagle Star which is now Zurich and then a few years later, I jumped ship again and I became a lecturer, which, as you say, you mentioned about having the greatest job in the world. I love my job. I love teaching. I love mm. working with students, both our own undergrad students, postgraduate students, but also students in primary and secondary school. So it gives me, I suppose, lots of opportunities. And you mentioned, yeah, I am very busy, but I love doing the work that I do. I love you know, all the different strings to the bow because it just gives you a different perspective on lots of different things. So, um, yeah, I am where I'm, I am. Not the most linear path, but here I am. Yeah, but you, you, every step you took, you knew where you were going. And that, that that's important. I'm not sure, though, Has. And I suppose this is something that I see with, with students who are planning their next step after mm. school is that, and and I suppose it, it's a feature of, of that age is, is wanting to know where you're going next. I never foresaw when I was in college, I never foresaw working as a programmer. I have to say I didn't like programming and we'll come to that later. Maybe um, it, it, I does wasn't anybody actually, really like programming? Well, I do uh, now. I have to say I right. love it. But <laughs> at the time, I found it very challenging. It wasn't my natural comfort zone. So I didn't foresee a job as a programmer. I didn't foresee a job as a lecturer. I certainly didn't see myself in education, I have to say. So actually, in all the years that I've been working, the only job that I foresaw when I when I went into college was the one that I did for four years. So it's funny that that's where it's ended up. So I think just being open to what might come and where it might lead you. I suppose even now, because of the, the you know, the new technological university of the Shannon, that has opened up opportunities from a research perspective for me, which I'm loving as well. So you never know where you'll end up. I suppose is is the is what I'm saying. 
So, I mean, what advice would you have? You brought this. I hadn't intended uh, the chat to take this route, but so so be it. And full disclosure, myself and you were, were friends. We're good yeah, friends. Absolutely, we've yeah. been friends for a very very long time. And I've I've never I've never asked these questions. So so bear with me. Like from a, a student filling out their CAO form, looking forward, panicking anxious they're told do coding if because that's everybody's told do, do coding at the minute like how, how do you say don't worry about it because life will have its own if what life has you has planned for you is going to happen like what advice do you have for students i know it's easy to say relax and it'll happen i i wasn't i, I mean i i suppose i didn't I didn't look to where I would be 30 years down the line. I never did that back when I was in school. I think sometimes I think now with the focus on CAO points and the focus on going to college and the focus on all of that, I think we're expecting a lot of our young people because I think you just don't know. I mean, as I said, I would have laughed at you when I was in college. And if somebody said to me, you'll end up lecturing like I'm facing into my 22nd year of lecturing and I love it. I never saw that in my future, never saw it in my future. And yet here I am. And I couldn't imagine doing anything else now. So I, I think it's hard to do it when you're that age because there's so much pressure to get the good results. There's so much pressure to get the correct, you know, course in college. But I think it works the way it works. And I know it's hard to see that at the time. I suppose as an example, when I was in school, I loved chemistry and I loved maths. And when I put down my CEO choices, I put maths first and I put chemistry second. And for the six months after I put down maths first and chemistry second, I considered, should I swap them? And on about 40 occasions, I nearly did. And I, I, I didn't. <laughs> I stuck with the maths in the end. If I had put chemistry first, I'd have made that work as well, or it would have worked as well. So I think you you make a decision and it's the best decision at that point in time. And I think you have to kind of make peace with the fact that there are lots of different options. There's lots of different ways of cutting lots of different things. And I think you just have to trust in it a little bit and trust in yourself a little bit as well you'll make things work um and like i have to be realistic this is going to be down all students listening to this but it's the teachers that will be listening to this that will pass on the information to to students um uh coding as a career um and of course i i feel a bit fake strange it's a bit of a strange question coming from a man but a woman in coding is like, how, how's that working out? I suppose there's a lot of talk about, you know, women in STEM generally. And mm. having completed a, a maths degree, you know, back in the, the late 80s, early 90s, it, 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 there weren't too many of us. That's for no. sure and certain. And actually, in, in fact, I think in some ways that has even gotten worse, particularly in the computer science area, I think. I never saw it as an issue. It was just what I wanted to do. So I loved maths. I do now love programming. I love the computer science area. Um, I, I think all you can do is just do what you're doing. And even, you know, for me, I, I would, I suppose, see part of my role is, is to help others and to help them to see what's there. I think as well, uh, has just on the, the computer science, I, I think coding is one aspect of it. But I, I think one of the concepts that's maybe out there about coding or computer science is that it is just coding. 
But, mm. you know, there are some very creative people out there. They can work on the, you know, the front end side. There's, you know, people who are more interested in the networking side. And I, I think that's true of both computer science and maths. You know, we, we kind of tend to pigeonhole and kind of say, and I'm not saying you're doing that, but it's just, I think we as, as a society tend to say, oh, you know, I love maths or I hate maths or I love coding or I hate coding or those kinds of things. I think there are so many different aspects that you can find well, do something. Do you know what, Pam? That, that's a very good point. Um, computer science, well, you say computer science to me, and the first thing I think of is coding. And I hate coding. Hate yeah, except that computer science is so much more. Like if you look can at you the, expand on that? Well, if what you is look computer at science? The applica- if you look at the applications that you interact with on a daily basis. So from your perspective, you know, you've been involved in IT support and you're involved probably a lot on that support side, the technical support side. But for me as a programmer, when I worked as a programmer, I was working on the systems that users used. I wasn't mm-hmm. necessarily working on the front end side of it. I was working more on the back end side. And then you look at websites or applications that you use on your phone or games. So there's all of those different aspects. And even within that, if you have a team of people, you're very rarely going to be working on all aspects of a system, particularly if you get into a larger company. So you have a team of people who work on the front end. You have a team of people who work on the back end. You have the database administrators. You have the technical support people. Once it's gone live, you have the technical support people who support it, who deal with all that kind of thing. So there's something for everyone it's just finding the bit that that works for you and I see even you know when you go into a classroom of you know primary school children and you're doing something like Scratch or Microsoft Make Code Arcade or something like that you'll see some people all they want to do is create the characters and then other Mm. people are like I, I don't really care what the character is I want them to do this and actually, a team is the people who create the characters, the people who decide what they're doing, the people who support it. So there's something there for, for everyone, if you want it. Computer science isn't for everyone, just like chemistry isn't for everyone, just like geography isn't for everyone, economics isn't for, you know, it's like that with every subject. But I, I think it's important to have some bit of an exposure to it so that you can see whether it's for you or not. And like... Uh... I suppose there's a big push at the moment on for computer science. Um, Some schools have a huge uptake. Other schools do not. I'm in a few schools. One school that I'm in isn't. They they don't have enough students to do computer science this year, but they did last year. Um, Like, do you feel there's a, like, where does it fit? Is it an important subject that, that should be done? Or are we still not seeing its value? I suppose, That's I don't know where I'm going with that question, Pam, but it's kind of like, you know, like English, we see its value. Maths, we see physics, we see its value. Computer science, surely in today's industry, in 2023, surely computer science is now a valued must-do subject or even a choice. I, I think it is in some ways, but then I, I do have a bias around that. So <laughs> yeah. I'd put that out there. But yeah, yeah. I think, I suppose, computer science, it underpins everything we do. Every, like every interaction. If you just look at, you look back at when COVID, you know, when everything stopped on that 12th of March, 2020, when everything stopped because of COVID and you were told you couldn't go and see your granny and you couldn't visit this person, you couldn't do that and you couldn't whatever. Technology stepped in. And lots of people, lots of grandparents use technology possibly for the very first time. So it's there. It's in everything we do. Like my nephew is in, is, has emigrated to, to Canada, having a ball over there. But my mom mm. can contact him, 
you know, can do a Zoom call with him or or whatever and feel like she's connected with him in a way that she didn't have that with her own family because a lot of her family emigrated to London or to England when they were younger. And that connection just wasn't there. So when you look at somebody like my mother and that generation, they grew up with no technology. We grew up with some and our children are growing up with technology everywhere. That change mm-hmm. in that short space of time has been mind-blowing. So I think computer science definitely has a place. I think it's it's going to take time to, to develop it because to teach computer science, it does take upskilling. It does take a concerted effort on the part of everyone, actually. I think, you know, teachers obviously are stepping up and they're doing it. And it's fantastic what teachers are doing. But I think the support needs to be there from the broader community as well and and the broader educational community i think because otherwise it's just not going to happen in the way that it probably needs to happen i think and you know if you look at you know an accountancy firm they have systems that they use all the time you know the the solicitors everyone the shops everything has technology at the heart of what it does now mm. there's very few yeah. walks of life where you can say that technology doesn't interact in some way with what you're doing yeah let's see i'm gonna i'm gonna roll it back there for a second you mentioned something important like the teachers are stepping up and they're they're, they're upskilling so like that's that's something i want to talk to you about and the efforts you're making you covered so many different things you covered number one you covered working with 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 students with kids uh, primary school uh, you, what I want to talk to you about is your, your work with teachers as well. But from, from an IT standpoint, and I think this is worth mentioning, and it would be a, a, a bad thing if I didn't mention it. If you look at the county councils of Ireland, there's a thousand computers in a county council. They might have 10 IT people. You look at the businesses, they have IT people on site. A school can have anything up to 200, um, 200 devices, 200 computers, and now we're encouraging them or, or pushing them, coaxing them to use 365 or Google Cloud, which means now there's a cloud aspect to it. They have no IT people on site unless they have to either reach out to the likes of myself or Chris Reyna or, or, or whoever's out there on the SESI list. I think that's unfair. I, I think I, I just think that's very unfair. On It, it adds a sour taste to the use of technology in an educational environment. I'd have to agree, Hass. I mean, like if you take me as an example, I am very comfortable in the technology space. I'm very comfortable in the computer science space, but the tech support, the setting up printers, the getting all that working, just not what I want to do. I, I'm just, I can do it, but mm. it's not... I suppose, my strong point. And yet, if you're a teacher in a school who shows an interest in anything technological, then you're it. It's almost yeah, like yeah, it's yeah. tag. You're it. And then you're chasing somebody to try and, and hand on the baton. And it's hard to do that. So you're expected to be, and this is, you know, through no fault of the school, but it's just they're trying their best to bring technology in, to bring computer science in. So anyone who shows an interest becomes the person. If you're lucky, you have more than one person in the school. But a lot of the time it comes down to one really dedicated, really enthusiastic person. But then they become it for everything. They become it for, you know, if there's any issue with a device, if there's any issue with the printers, if there's any issue with anything, they become it. And Mm. it's a huge ask. It really is a huge ask. But here's the thing. It's not, if it was easy, I wouldn't have a job. This is like a point I was mentioning. It's They're they're looking at requests come in and it's a printer down and it's a thing and the teacher is looking at me going, 
how do I make it work? And I'm going, it's taken me five years to figure out how to make it work. (laughs) I can't explain it to you in two hours. Um, And again, the example I use is relax. If it was easy, I wouldn't be employed in this. There wouldn't be a whole section of industry dedicated to what I do. You know, but I just think it's yeah. unfair. Now, Pam, talk to me about, uh, I want to, of course, we're Computers and Education Society of Ireland. I'm, I'll, I'll sort of, I'll, I'll quiz you about uh, your involvement there. But first of all, your work with teachers. I think teachers would be very interested, um, very interested to hear this. So I suppose over the years, I've been lecturing for more than 20 years at this point in time. And back then when I started, there was no computer science formally in, in the, the primary or second level classroom. So we worked with local schools. We, you know, we taught some of their students Java or web development or things like that. So I've been working with schools since I started lecturing. And I suppose over the years, it's evolved that teachers want to upskill both formally and informally. So we've been running workshops, we've been running the ICT and Education Conference, we've been doing all of that from what was the Tiberi Institute, which became Limerick Institute of Technology and now has become the Technological University of the Shannon. And I suppose we saw a need a couple of years ago to formalize the qualification of and the workshops that we were doing. So we have a suite of programs up to master's level in computer science for teachers. And this is specifically for teachers who want to upskill both primary and secondary. And I know it's, it's, I suppose it's more geared towards the secondary, but when we were putting it together, we were very conscious that we have worked with a lot of primary schools as well. So we put it together in such a way that there's a certificate program, which is the first year, which, you know, primary school teachers could certainly, um, get involved in and, and do that. If that's all they want to do, they could leave it there. But then if they wanted to go on to master's level or postgraduate diploma level, there's another year of thought um, modules as well. And that's looking at things like Python and, and you know, databases and advanced embedded systems like Raspberry Pi and Arduino. And then there's, if you want to continue on to the master's, there is a 30 credit thesis that you can do. The, I suppose the reason we've done that is because we, we've seen a need for it. But mm. I suppose it, it's it's difficult because you're trying to get teachers who are working, who are yeah. also trying to upscale and fund it themselves. And that, I think, is a huge problem. And I think that's going to become problematic for computer science in the schools because I think a lot of teachers do want to upskill, but the giving up of their own time and funding it themselves is is definitely challenging, I'd say, is probably the easiest way and, because that's one thing I'm asked about all the time. I, I once a week, twice a week. How do we upskill? Where do we where do we go to upskill? And um, there's a few places, and you have the solution. Yeah, I suppose the thing about it is has, and it goes back to the you know you were saying that you know when somebody asks you about you know solving a problem that they have, it's taken you you know, five years or more or whatever number of years to, to be able to to mm. find that solution. It's very unfair to expect a teacher to go into a classroom and teach coding because teaching coding isn't linear. You can't just no. say, you know, in the way that you can bring a group along with you in other subjects in an easier fashion than you can with computer science. Because when you let students loose with, say, something like Scratch or Arcade or Microbit or something like that, they'll go in 40 different directions. And that's fine if you are comfortable with solving those problems. But they will run into a difficulty because they have put something, you know, they, they've changed the order or something or whatever, and it just doesn't work the way it should. But sometimes if you're not terribly 
confident yourself, it can be very difficult to find those problems. And then you've got the rest of the class and you're trying to bring them along while you're solving a problem for one person. So the computer science classroom is, is a little bit of a different animal. And I think teachers need a lot of support to be able to make that work in their classroom. And, you know, providing opportunities for upskilling, it's a no-brainer, really. But I, I think we need to get a little bit serious about how we support those teachers when they're doing that. Um, I, I couldn't agree more because coding is problem solving. And I know we're all, we're again, we're talking about computer science. Yeah. We're right back to coding again. Yeah. But coding is problem solving. It is. So Absolutely. That, that's its basis. Yeah. It's its essence. So why was coding invented was to solve a problem. Exactly. So, you know. But even if you look at, you know, if you take it to an, another step, I suppose, you know, I, I work with, with my students on you know, connecting websites and databases through a programming language. And mm. any of that connectivity, as you know, any of that networking stuff, any of that connectivity is problematic. So if you have a student who has a problem, it could take you 20 minutes to solve that one problem for that one student. What I would say is the first year you do it, you don't know anything. You think you do, mm. but you don't know anything. And then you see all these issues and problems and whatever. But as time goes on, you get more used to it. So you know, you start to recognize, oh, well, I've seen that before. Try this. And you can you can empower the student to do it themselves. And that's what it's about as well. It's about empowering teachers to help them to empower their students, because at the end of the day, computer science is in no matter what form you, you take of it. It is about problem solving. IT support mm -hmm. is about problem solving. Coding is about problem solving often. Even the front end stuff, it's about making sure that you can, you know, you can make things the way somebody else wants them. And sometimes that can be challenging. So I, I think but it's the about teaching, like the teaching of computational thinking and problem solving is a very hard thing to do. So if you give, like, I, I've done this in workshops where you give a bunch of students some micro bits or scratch or whatever, and you say, here's an outline, make it do this, this is how you make it do this, this, and this, go. My failing is when a student has a problem, I'll go up to the student and go, oh, yeah, I, okay, I don't see what the problem is. And I'll sit down and try and solve the problem. Whereas it's not my job to solve the problem, it's my job to point the student in the direction to solve the problem. You have to guide them, though. You have to make them feel that they can do it. And I mm. see that even when I'm teaching maths. It is a fine line. If you if you just solve it for them, then you're not making them a problem solver. But if you sit down with them and talk it through and discuss how, well, firstly, what the problem is. Secondly, do they have any options on how they think it might be solvable? And if they don't, then maybe tease it out with them and nudge them in the right direction without necessarily giving them the answer. But then that's difficult. If you've got 25 students in a class, yeah, you don't always have that time either. So no. it is challenging. It is definitely it's, challenging. It's very challenging. Um, it, it's it's especially when, like you said it there. Well, for me, this is a very this is a very personal thing. So anytime anybody asks me to solve a problem, it's because they want me to solve the problem. But when you're doing a workshop, when you're working with students and they have a problem, my instinct is to solve that problem. Whereas my instinct should be to point them in the direction of solving the problem themselves. So yes, that, that I can see that's a problem. However, if you do this, this, and this, and I'm not going to 
say too much about him because he's going to be on this SE staff room soon. But Chris Rayner has a great approach to that where he just says, go do it. Like, yeah. just come back to me. And that, that's a gift. That is. And I think sometimes that approach definitely is needed. I think to get students to that point where they have the confidence, though, there is a bit more handholding needed in the beginning. Okay. It's actually remembering to let go of the hand, I right. think, as well. Right. I think you need to push them a little bit. Pam, working with students, working in schools, youth media team. Talk to me about the youth media team. First of all, what is it? So the youth media team, I suppose, was set up, as I mentioned, I am an organiser of the Ice Teen Education Conference. And in 2013, we have a theme every year. And in 2013, our theme was uh, student voice. And I was talking to Conor Galvin, um, from UCD and Bernie Goldback, one of my own colleagues, as I often did um, in the run-up to the conference about what the theme should be and what we should do. And could we innovate or could we do something different in different years? And, we, you know, we, we try to bring different things in different years. And this year, because it was a student voice, Connor said, you know, would we bring in a group of students and, and actually do it rather than talking about it, rather than talking about students, let's talk to them. Mm. So... As was my want back then, I was like, how will that work? What kind of work is that going to make for me or whatever? And then I thought, you know what, let's try it. What's the worst that can happen? So we gathered a group of students and we brought them in and we decided and I, I suppose we made some decisions early on that I think really worked like in so many ways it really worked we kept it as quite a stripped back process but it was actually quite a sophisticated process as well so we decided that they would come in and that they would report on the the conference so their remit i suppose was to go find people to interview ask them a few questions record a short interview the interviews were kind of you know five minutes ish maybe less maybe more in some cases but that was kind of the the thing and then they had to record it and the rule was you had to write a blog post, publish the blog post mm. and tweet it. And until the tweet went out, the job wasn't done. So that was, I suppose, our rough decisions around so that. I, I, I'm, let's just summarize for a second. right? So you decided it would be a good idea to train up some students to, number one, find somebody to interview, interview them, bring that interview back, for post production, write a blog post about that interview, and then tweet. Is that is, are those all the moving parts? That was, except I'm going to correct you a small bit. We didn't. We decided not to do post production. Oh, okay. it was okay. it was good enough. That's the right, right. because we felt that if we went for post production, you'd be there for the year, and it would never be good yeah. enough. So it was. You got kind of one shot at it. And mm -hmm. that was the best decision we ever made, I have to say. But actually, just going back to to the empowerment and the computer science, I suppose that underpins what we did here because we kind of got out of the way. So we had the mentors are very important in, in youth media team, I have to say. I think having that support, the, the students need it, but the mentors got out of the way. So we worked with them. And the way it would normally work, and I suppose we had a process, just going back to, I suppose, the first one, they, it, it worked better than any of us could ever have imagined or ever have hoped. <laughs> I mean, they completely stole the show. I'm not sure were you at the conference that year, but they I completely was. they completely blew everyone out of the water. I mean, you know, it, it, they just 
rocked up in their red t-shirts and that was another decision Connor said let's let's give them t-shirts of a particular color and the rule was you couldn't say no to a red t-shirt so if you were asked for an interview you couldn't say no and the the red t-shirts back then were red t-shirts from Dunn's that's what it Mm. was I went out bought a a load of red t-shirts and they all wore a red t-shirt but we decided then because of of that success that we would take them on the road and I suppose some of the things that we, that we did we put a process in place so we had a tent which we didn't have the first time around but Connor decided that maybe you know having our own space our own place that you could get people to come to or that that was marking out our territory I suppose it was mm. but actually the other side of it was in pitching our tent in the morning that got us into the process so we would leave Tipperary generally at about six or half six in the morning to go to an event on a Saturday morning. A lot of Saturday mornings were spent doing that. We'd rock up, we'd pitch our tent, but in the pitching of our tent, we'd start chatting about, you know, the event and what we wanted to do, where we wanted to take that day, who we might want to interview. So the process was all tied up together. And then we'd have a look at the schedule and pick out the main people we wanted to interview and then pick out some other people as well. So the process was all part of it. And then we'd kind of work with them. So we'd get them to do a little bit of research. So again, it was empowering them to do the work. We didn't sit down and say, these are the people you're going to interview. These are the questions you're going to ask. This is how you do it. It was very much working in collaboration with them. Now, there were a couple of exceptions. Obviously, if we had somebody very high profile, we had a different process to go through. But for the most part, most of the interviews we did was on that basis. So the students themselves would do a little bit of research. They'd find out a little bit about the person they were going to interview, particularly the the keynote speakers and things like that. They would kind of come up with questions and then we'd sit with them as mentors and just work those questions with them and just discuss with them maybe a, a slightly better way of asking the question or but as time went on we didn't have to do that very much at all so then they would they would interview together and we we made a decision as well that that it wasn't a solitary process that people would work together so you'd have two people and they'd that would give them a little bit of I suppose breathing space so if you had two people interviewing they'd take it in turns to ask the question so they had a bit of time to kind of settle get ready for the next question so it was a process that worked very well the benefit of it as well which became apparent later was as we brought new members into the team because we had this double interview kind of style then we could just slot a new member in with a more seasoned member and then they just trained Mm. each other up so it was a win from our point of view but it was a very very powerful setting I suppose for for the young people I mean they got to interview amazing people they got to interview just that that brings me to my next question like and talk to me about so talk to me about some of the people that you got to interview well, I suppose the most high profile person that we got to interview was Uktaran Aheron, Michael D. Higgins. Um, that was a real coup. I mean, the excitement mm. that time was just How? phenomenal. How? But How do you know what? Happen? Well, you see, we were invited to Failsha and um, the president was going to speak at Failsha. So we got first dibs and it was fantastic. So we got to do that. Now, with that one, I think we had to send the questions beforehand just for pre-approval, which was fine. We worked yeah, on that and fine. we got that done. Mm. But the, the great thing about that interview was, you know, we, we were all prepared for the interview with the president and we did all that and it was fantastic. And everyone was involved because we had some people taking pictures and we had some people, you know, because of that one, and it was such a high profile one, I was very conscious that we needed to bring the entire team in. It, it, the mm-hmm. youth media team isn't about any one person. It never has been. It's about the team. So we would always, you know, try and, and share the load. And that one, we actually put the names in a hat. We didn't pick 
who would do it or whatever. It wasn't our most seasoned people um, that were chosen for it. it. Names went into a hat. We we chose it that way. And, and I think it was the only way to go, really. But after the interview, the president's wife, Sabina, was there as well. And we got an opportunity. I can't even remember how it happened, but we got an opportunity to ask Sabina some questions as well. And wow. it was completely from nowhere. And the lads just clicked in because they had been empowered because they had done this process so many times before they didn't even blink like it, it was a do it now or you don't get it at all it wasn't mm. a come back in an hour and we'll be ready it was literally you have an opportunity are you going to take it or not and we did and that one blew me away i have to say they just they just did it they they were brilliant they really were they were fantastic and i was just standing on the sidelines thinking oh my god how did this happen so that, I, that's that's my question like how how did this happen and it, it sounds you can tell in your voice that that you're proud of them and you're very oh my god absolutely i mean just so just watching them grow in confidence and that's the thing that's what i loved about my involvement with the youth media team is you took in a student who was quite young often like 12 13 14 and you just saw them grow in confidence like those guys just rocked up to the president of Ireland and, and asked their questions. And then when it, it came an opportunity to pivot and, and on the fly asked some questions of his wife, Sabina, they did that as well. So, But they had the confidence to do that. So it, it's great to see that evolution in students. It's It prepares them. It prepares them for what's coming, you know, down the line. And that age can be tricky for students as well. It can be, you know, they have a lot going on. They have a lot going on in school. They have a lot going on maybe at home. You just don't know. They have a lot going mm. on in their own personal lives. They're they're evolving from being a child into an adult. And that's, that's tricky. So giving them a bit of confidence to take on those challenges is is was a privilege i have to say from my perspective pam giving them a voice is important a lot of the time a lot of time students uh, of that age in that age bracket don't have a voice and that's their thing they're they're in this this environment and there's loads of voices and there's loads of noise but they don't have a voice and the, the, if, if you're anyway shy at all the fear is you, you, your voice will never be heard. What you did is you enabled them. Now they have a voice. That's a huge thing, and I'm I'm harping on about this for 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 a long time. Enabling like every school, in my humblest of opinions, should have a youth media team. Now this always gets thrown back in my face by going, they go, oh, we don't have time, we don't have enough. Make the time, because the skill set that you gain. From researching somebody, talking to somebody, and publishing your work is is a big is a big deal. It's it's huge. Um, I couldn't agree I, I've more. I've just seen yeah. it too many times. As the other thing, I think as well, we often talk about students. We don't always talk to them, mm. and I think it's important that you talk to them and let them talk to us. And just going back to the conference thing and the you know the shyness and whatever. It's maybe hard to believe now, but I was that shy student. I wouldn't have said boo mm. to a goose back then. So I see that in the students and I see. And sometimes, you know, when you're mentoring a group like that, you have to watch. And that's mm. that's the job of a mentor. It's it's the watching. It's it's seeing the one who 
fades into the background and and bringing them forward in a way that's okay for them, not putting them in a spotlight that they're not okay with, but actually supporting them and putting them with somebody who will bring them along. And, and that's the thing, you know, they were a lovely group. All the groups that I worked with over the years were, were fantastic and they were always really supportive of each other and they were very much a team. And I have to say, mm. one of the things I loved most about the youth media team when I, you know, when we were up and down the country was they were often in my car. <laughs> At six o'clock in the morning on a Saturday morning. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the mornings were a bit quieter, but coming home in the evenings, I'd think, okay, they're wrecked now after the day. And, you know, there won't be people, but should they be singing and we'd be putting on music? And invariably, as we got close to home, John Denver's country roads would, would blare yeah. from my car. And, but it was, <laughs> it was great because we'd stop, you know, for a bite to eat and we'd chat mm-hmm. and we'd, we'd talk about what we did for the day and we'd talk about, what was their favorite part of the day? And it wasn't always about the day. It was, you know, we just chat about different things and whatever. So it was just, it was great. It was, it was, it was as I said, it was a privilege. I, I think it's a big deal. I, I think not an awful lot of people know about the youth media team. And I think those who have met the youth media team or have encountered the youth media team will always say, nobody has ever come back to me and said, oh, you know, nothing bad is ever in no. Yeah, which is extraordinary. Them. They're a credit to their mentors, like to do the job yeah. that they're doing. And you, you mentioned that you were that person. You were that quiet person. I was that quiet person before I got in, before I got into IT, I was in radio. And it, I, I call it red light syndrome that you, 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 that red light goes on, you you do the thing and the red light goes off and you can go back into yourself again. But I, I just think every school needs it. I, just that skill set to put yourself yeah. out and to know you'll be fine. That's it. And has, I suppose the other thing to say is, you know, there might be a perception that we had all this kit, this equipment that, that, that was, was amazing. That was my next question. Yeah. Where did it come from? Like, what, what, uh, what is the kit? A bit What's of sellotape here and there. There wasn't a whole lot. <laughs> now, look, we had, I suppose we started off with a couple of iPads. Mm-hmm. So that was our stock and trade. We had a couple of iPads and we had a couple of Camara laptops. So winging a prayer. I mean, we didn't have expensive kit. As I said, we made a decision, no post-production because it would never yeah. be good enough. Um, and, you know, sometimes the lads would stutter over something. But that's all, that was all part of the charm. Now, there was very few mm-hmm. times that we actually restarted an interview. It was you start, you go and that's fine. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it I suppose we took a couple of decisions that made a huge impact on how we evolved because if we had post-production, it would have taken weeks and months and nothing would have gotten produced. Often when we came out of an event, we might have 10 interviews recorded, published, blog posted and tweeted. That was So by five o'clock when we were leaving, it all had to be done because otherwise I was going to be spending my weekend getting everything done. So it was very much a it's good enough it's it's good and it's it's perfect but the equipment was more about facilitating rather than getting in the way and that those were the decisions we made and it was a very important one so we literally just used apps on the the ipad to record Mm. we would then publish those and they would be published for the most part they would go straight live so there wasn't even an opportunity to listen listen back or whatever because there just wasn't the time but anyway it was on the fly. And and that was the whole beauty of it was that it was it was done like that. And then we had the couple of laptops to to you know to write up the blog posts on. And that was it. it there was a few times when we had a bit, you know, more sophisticated equipment. Um with you know, Bernie had had access to that from the creative multimedia programs in Clonmel. But we, we generally 
did it very much stripped back. So any school could do it. It's not about having, you know, thousands of euros worth of equipment. It, it, it was about using devices that we already had access to. Yeah, I, I just, I think it, it sh- there should be more of it. There should be more media studies. Uh, there's, a, there's another side to media studies as well, like the, the critical thinking. It teaches critical thinking. Um, sure. but that's, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a talk f- for another day. I, I firmly believe that there should be, there, it's, it's in the, we, we talk. So let me just bookend the, the youth media team story. So we talk about all the amazing stuff that's going on in other parts of the world, but we're doing it here. Like youth media team is a big deal. I don't know anybody else that is, uh, put the dedication, the time and the blood, sweat and tears into the youth media team like yourself, Bernie and Connor. Um, and I, I do want to bring you, the three of you to talk about the youth media team uh, in, at, a, at a different stage. But look, at, I said it a million times, I'll say it again. Every school needs a youth media team. You have a website, you have a Twitter account, you have a Facebook account. Get a youth media team. Get them to 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 support it. So we spoke about youth media team. Koro Dojo. What, Pam? Because like you don't have enough to be doing, so now you're you're in Koro Dojo. Well, that. De- <laughs> oh, what? That developed because my children were at an age, I suppose, where they. Well, I wanted to give them an opportunity to experience coding. And it's not always easy to do it yourself when you're at home or whatever. So I saw the Coder Dojo Limerick had started in September 2011. And I brought my son with me um, to see what was going on. And then we, I think they brought Scratch in a couple of weeks later. And I brought my daughter and my niece. And that was kind of the start of it. And then I was a mentor and I will probably always be a Coder Dojo mentor. So Coder Dojo is a global free volunteer-led series of programming clubs for t- for uh, kids from 7 to 17 so children and you know teens um it's everyone is different i guess because it depends on the mentors that you have i've been involved in limerick um i set up the nina one and i've been involved in the thurless one as well um so i've been involved in all of them over the years um COVID kind of put a stop to them for a little while, but we're getting back up and running. So we've had Limerick back up and running last year. We weren't in a position to bring Nina or Thurlis back, but we're looking at doing that again. And I suppose, it's again, it's just about providing opportunities for kids to learn coding because it's not always possible in the schools, as you said. Um, so it's in some cases, it's about, you know, teaching them scratch or teaching them different things. In other cases, it's just about providing a space that they can work together on projects and we can we can mentor them or we can help them, but actually mm. they're doing their own thing. They just want to meet other people who are doing their thing like they are doing their thing. Is there, is there any other, like, is, is there, is it, is there clubs around the country? Can anybody set up a club? How do you set up a club? Yeah. So you can, you know, if you, you look at, if you Google Code Dojo, you can, you can add a club and um, there are loads of them around the country. I, I think COVID, unfortunately, like a lot of things, it kind of put a stop to, a few things or put a, a pause and um, I think things are, are opening up a lot we made a decision that we weren't because we were in person we made a decision that obviously we couldn't go in person for quite a while we decided not to go with the online because I suppose you've got a lot of younger children and then that you know with the whole being online it would have introduced a lot of complexity that 
it's volunteer. It's it's all, you know, it's completely volunteer led. So it would have put a lot of, of extra work where we were already very stretched anyway. So we made a decision when we couldn't meet in person that we wouldn't do it online. We used to send out some materials to people um, for a period of time. And then we came back with Coded Ojo Limerick last year. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's a great thing to be part of. Like, as I said, I started, I got involved when my children were kind of at that age, but they're not anymore. Um, and that, that's fine, but I'm still involved because you get an energy when you see that spark in a young person's eyes when they, they move something around the screen or they create their own game for the first time. It, nothing beats it. Mm. Uh, it's something I'm asked about again, um, set, setting them up and how to go. And they're all, I'm always so, I don't know where to start. So just go to the internet. Yeah, up. just yeah, look up the Coder Dojo website and there's loads of information. There's resources. You name it, it's there. There's so much. One of the best definitions I've heard for for uh, for code, for coder dojo was it's it's effect, it's effectively taking an anti-social activity. So coding back in the day was just coding focused, very solitary. Yeah, yeah, and it's making it uh, it's making it social. Yeah. So you're coding you're coding shoulder to shoulder with somebody. That that learning process. Yes, yeah. and you have other people to ask if something goes wrong. Mm. You have other people to ask, and that's you know that's how you learn. I suppose it's it's kind of an informal way of doing things. I suppose that ties nicely into uh, sort of EU Code Week ambassador. So let's let's just stop for for one second, Pam. Now, now I know you have a great job, right? Because that's that's an in in joke where Pam every now and then will text me going, "I have to do a thing in a school, and the kids are amazing." Oh my God, I have a great job. So that's <laughs> that's an ongoing thing. So you have the the great job. You're a lecturer. You're working with students. You have um, you, the the youth media team thing thing we call it Code Dojo thing. You're EU Code Week ambassador as well. So EU Code Week. What? So EU Code Week is a pan-European grassroots movement which aims to bring coding and digital literacy to everyone. So it's about making it accessible, not just for children. So I suppose it's a little bit different from Coder Dojo in that perspective. It's it's just making it accessible for all. Um, it's supported by the European Commission and there is a community in each country or there's a, an EU Code Week uh, team in each country. So there's an educational coordinator, there are a number of ambassadors and there are a, a series of leading teachers. So I'm lucky to work with Julie Power as one of the two EU Code Week ambassadors in Ireland. Um, I've been involved for the past few years. I, I suppose I, being involved in Coder Dojo and being around coding as much as I have been over the, the years, you know, EU Code Week was always going to be something that that was, you know, that I was involved in. So as part of Code Week, or Coder Dojo, we used to organize events. So we had the Mega Dojo event in uh, Coder Dojo Limerick over a number of years to coincide with Code Week. I've known the other Code Week ambassadors. So Mag Zamond was a former EU Code Week ambassador. Eugene McDonough was a former EU Code Week ambassador. And when I was asked a couple of years ago to get involved, it was really a no-brainer for me. Um, so I work with Julie on just raising the profile of EU Code Week in Ireland. EU Code Week happens every year in October. And it's really just about, you know, helping people and supporting people to create activities around coding for Code Week. Um, 
how, how how do you get involved with EU Code Week? How do schools get involved with EU Code Week? Well, it's very easy, really. If you look up codeweek.eu, which is the, the Code Week website, um, you can just see lots of, there's resources there. There's an activity map. So every country pins activities. So you can just create an activity yourself. You can, you can decide you're going to run an activity. And lots of schools are doing coding anyway. So if we could get teachers and people to just pin the activities they're already doing. We're not asking you to, you know, do a specific activity because, as I said, a lot of schools are doing coding activities every week anyway. So teachers or anyone can create an activity and pin it to the map and that will just help to spread the word in Ireland or in any country. And again, you can just have a look on the Code Week website, codeweek.eu. There are resources there to use if you don't have, you know, if you don't have ideas, you can do both plugged and unplugged activities. So unplugged activities are more the computational thinking exercises. So the algorithmic thinking exercises. Um, so it's not restricted to coding. It can be anything in the computer science area. So... I, I like what the one the one thing I'm going to hang on is you're saying that if schools are doing stuff already, just tell us you're doing them rather than you don't have to do something new as well as what you're doing already. Absolutely. Just any, highlight what you're doing. Yeah. Any activity around coding, around computer science is, is a valid activity. And they're all happening. I mean, you know, you're in schools, I'm in schools. Mm. They're all happening anyway. Now the one pushback on on any of these on any of these things is always that oh we're busy we're already busy busy doing stuff and I've I've said it before in in the SESI staff room, but what I think what you said is is very important that if you are doing stuff already like the reason you're busy and if it's to do with coding let us know and pin that to the map exactly exactly. But the other thing about it is, if you put it on the map, then other teachers might see that and say, oh, that's a good idea. Maybe I could do that. So it's actually mm. just about spreading awareness about the types of things you can do. It's not the very narrow coding focus. That's that's the key message, I guess. Your involvement with SESI. So SESI, Computers and Education Society of Ireland, the creator of, 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 of the SESI staff room. When... And how did you come across SESI? So I got involved in the ICT in Education Conference. We, we've ran our conference since 2004. And I've been involved, I suppose, in that I turned up and, and did things from 2004. But in 2008, I was asked to get involved in the organization of the, the event. And I suppose over the years, I got to know about SESI. So I think it was 2008 was my first conference. And one thing that always strikes me about that first conference was it was a bit nerve wracking. You know, I mentioned I was the, the shy <laughs> shy student back in the day and and that person is still there so going to an event like that is a bit nerve-wracking when you don't know people and it's something I always try to kind of bring into our conference and just make sure that you know people are to make it easy for people to chat to people and you know whatever so I went along to the first one which I think was in Fairhouse and um, but actually it was such a great experience and you know you know the, being an introvert and, and and not being terribly comfortable in the social scene can be a little bit difficult but something like SESI is just so warm and welcoming and you meet other people and you get plenty of opportunities to chat so once I went that was it I was going to go for, forever really and I have been mm. I think I think I've missed one over the years um 
And that was for a very good reason because my sister's hen party was on that weekend. So that's the only one I've missed to the best of my knowledge. So, uh, yeah, it was either be excommunicated at home or miss the SESI conference. So the the message is uh, Computers and Education Society of Ireland, get involved, find out about the conference, find out about the SESI list. Um, We're here. We support teachers. Um, It's what we do. Pam, you're again doing so many things. You're also, I mean, up here. Pointing at it here, you're also a fan of origami. Like I couldn't how? recommend, yeah, I couldn't how? recommend it highly enough. What? D- <laughs> well, origami, yeah, origami for me is is not about work though. Origami for me is relaxation. It's about hmm. it's mindfulness in another guise. I mean, I saw when my granny was alive she used to knit and crochet and do all that kind of stuff and and i see origami in a very similar way because you're focused on the next fold your folding Mm. paper so origami for those who don't know is paper folding Uh, there's lots of different kinds of origami i love modular origami so it's where you put together units you make units or modules and you put them together to make structures so for example I've got this little one here. So there's a number of different units. I think there's eight units in this one. So you make one individual unit, you put them together. So there's eight sheets of paper on this and you put it together and you've got a 3D structure. What I love about it is when I'm stressed, origami is my my release it's mm. because i'm i'm focusing and it's but it's very tied into computer science, it's tied into maths. There's a logical you know, you take a logical approach to it. There's an algorithm you follow. You do the same steps. You put it together. So there's the same steps to create the modules. There is the same steps to put it together. So again, this is one. This is a nice little fidget toy. And again, each of these units is actually very straightforward. So you got one sheet of paper for each unit. So describe that for those who can't see. For those who, who so it's it's audio. called. I'll just take it apart a little bit. It's uh, I suppose a snake in some ways. It um it just it it has come, but it's it's very tactile. So you can see, and if I just take out one of the units, you'll see. So it looks quite impressive, even if I do mm. say so myself. But actually, this is a unit. So there's just okay. so all so there's maybe I don't know how many there's maybe fifty or sixty units in this one, but you just put all those units together. So you start off with a plain sheet of paper, and I'll just unwrap this. So just to show that there, there is no snake oil here, <laughs> that's it. And then you just fold it, you fold it in, and that's your unit. Okay. And then you put all those units together, and you get this. But even for a class. If you want them to, you know, just to relax into something. It's a nice little activity to do. And you don't have to do this. I make these sometimes when I'm, uh, you know, when I'm watching television or whatever, because it just, if I'm, if my mind is, is going, mm. it just helps me to, to settle my mind. Because when you're working on origami, you have to focus on the next, the, the next fold. That's all you're focusing yeah. on. So it kind of helps you to, to empty your mind. And I, I have to say the last few weeks, have been quite busy um, uh, for lots of different reasons. And I haven't done any paper folding for a while. I miss it. So when I need to, to I suppose, ground myself, this is where I go. I go back to okay. the origami because it, it, it just helps me to do that. Um, Pam, you're amazing. Um, Thank you. I, I, love, I love the paper folding idea. I love the origami idea. I love getting the gifts from you. <laughs> So uh, it's that, nice to be able to give class. them. 
Yeah, well, fair play, fair play. Now, we can't, I can't let you go, right? You've turned paper into 3D objects. You're the busiest person in the world. You're a coder, lecturer, friend. MakerMeet, your involvement with MakerMeet. MakerMeet Ireland. So like. MakerMeet Ireland has been a long time in the making. Um, mm -hmm. As you know, has MakerMeet Ireland evolved from um, a conversation or a number of conversations that I had with Bianca Negrogon. Um, Bianca, as you know, was very much about maker education, project-based learning, tinkering, all of that good stuff. And you and I and Bianca had a number of conversations and we talked about MakerMeet and setting up a MakerMeet. And we did before Bianca passed, we did we had a, a couple of maker meets and it has evolved from there. So it's it's very much a, I suppose, project from the heart. Um, it's something I'm very, 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 I suppose, invested in. Um, my, my doctoral studies are in the area of mm. informal learning, which is all about what maker meet is about. It's about learning through doing the incidental learning that, you, that happens when you're trying to make something. And you're not necessarily focused on the learning. You're focused on trying to do something, make something. It's all of that good stuff. Love it. Every For those it. that don't know what a maker is how, how do you define them now again i have to full disclosure i've i'm i'm involved with maker meet i am part of maker meet this is not an ad this is not an ad for maker meet uh, so just get that out of the way. um wh what is what is a maker what what makes a maker a maker i suppose i mean everyone is a maker in some shape maker form i mean when i think back to my dad like he was always able to fix things you know if, if a washing machine broke he was able to fix it if if he wanted to make something you know he would do that kind of thing so the men's sheds they're all makers but every classroom is a maker if you think of the arts and crafts that happen in in, in primary schools that's all maker based so you're doing things you're making things and it, it can be everything it can be anything origami is making so there's no start and end to it, I would say. It's it's in everything we do. I think what we've done sometimes in education is we put things in boxes. And I think we've forgotten that that actually in everything we do, if you want to, you know, create something, whether it's putting together furniture, flat pack furniture, that's making. There's, you know, more creative ways of doing it, putting together, you know, projects for embedded systems. That's all making. It, it's it's there in everything we do. We do it all the time, but we don't see it as learning. And that's, I suppose, where I'm very interested in it because we don't see it as learning. But the ma the learning that we're hap that happens when we're making is just so powerful because we're doing it to fulfill a real life or to find a, a solution to a real life problem. And that's where the, the real strength of it comes in, I think. How can how do schools like? I mean, it's a tough one. It's a tough. I don't know the question I'm trying to figure out. But like from my point of view, I'd like to see a makerspace in every school in Ireland. Yeah. But uh, the problem there, Pam, I'm dealt with every single day, and I don't think schools realize this. Is there already is a, a makerspace, makerspace yeah. in yeah. every school in Ireland? Well, if you have and, paper and paper clips and all those kinds of things, then you've got a makerspace. Do you know what I mean? That's, but that's the reality of it. Like this is sheets of paper. Mm. That's all it is. Sheets of paper. Nothing more, nothing less. 
And that's only a small thing. But, you know, every classroom has a plethora of things that you can put together and make a makerspace. One of the one of the my favorite, I suppose, activities I do with students is the paper towers challenge where you give them 10 sheets of paper. Mm-hmm. And nothing else. And they have to create a structure that will support something like this 100 gram bag of rice. And I, this is how much I use it because it's right here. I hadn't planned on talking about this at all, but it's there. So yeah. it's a 100 gram bag of rice, double bagged. And that's so the structure that they make 10 sheets of paper, no more, no less. So, you know, a lot of people think, oh, makerspace, I need laser printers and, uh, and or 3D printers yeah, and fry yeah, cut, yeah. cutters and all these kind of laser cutters and all that kind of stuff. You don't. The most mm. basic of things. We did a, a workshop with a group of um, young scientist winners in Microsoft a number of years ago, and we used, I think it was cans of, of soft drinks as the, the things that we, that, now not for the, the paper towers, actually, that was for a bridge one. Sorry, I'm getting my, my uh, workshops um, confused. But again, it can be a bar of chocolate that, that they have to support. It can be anything. It doesn't really matter what it is, but it's actually just about the, the idea of how can you turn flat sheets of paper into something that will support a weight. That's what it's about. Mm. It's about being creative in how you go about things. And, and as I said, any, any school can do that. Yeah. It's about a learning space more so yeah. than making yeah. it. That's, that's the confusing part is because so often the, the tinkerers, the makers are involved sometime with technology. So the nerds of the world might have a 3D printer. So I 3D print that thing to fix something else. The assumption is that... Which is great too. You need... Yeah. It, it is, but it's not the essence of no. a makerspace. Absolutely um, not. Couldn't uh, be further away from it, to be honest, in my no, opinion. No, TOG is a makerspace yeah. in Dublin, and they take great pride in the fact that they made a pizza oven. Yeah. Do you know that? Yeah. And that's just the way that. So it's about involving technology in making. And I've said it before, and I think you said it there as well. Making makerspaces, classrooms have been makerspaces since the very first Christmas card was ever made in a classroom Absolutely, with arts yeah. and crafts. Yeah. But how many of you have a dad who, you know, made things or fixed things or tinkered mm-hmm. with something? That's what it's about. It's about tinkering and making and, and discovering. It's it's about discovery more than anything else. It's not about a linear path to what you're going to learn. It's actually about discovering that, you know, in the example of the paper towers, you know, cylinders don't work terribly well because they unravel, but maybe, mm. you know, a triangular structure might work better. But again, the only way to do that is to try them and see what works and what doesn't work. That's the beauty of it. That's what I love about it. Personally. I think if you want to know more about workshops, um, that could be a SESI staff room in itself where we get uh, Absolutely, yeah. to talk about yeah, um, some workshops that work. Um, Pam O'Brien, thank you very much for joining us in the SESI staff room. Again, I said it at the start, it's going to be a half hour. That was uh, 45 minutes ago. Uh, that was more than 45 minutes ago. <laughs> so, Pam O'Brien, thank you very much for joining us in the SESI staff room. I hope to talk to you again soon. Enjoy or keep enjoying doing what you're doing and um, chat to you soon. Thanks for having me, Hass. Great to have the chat.